0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV.
1: Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Ari A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Rabbi Ari Hart. Uh, Rabbi Ari, could you please introduce yourself? Hey,
0: everybody. Great to be with fellow Ari, fellow lion. Um, (laughs) Ari means lion in Hebrew. Uh, I'm a rabbi based here in Skokie, Illinois. Grew up mostly in the Chicago area. Um, have smicha ordination from rabbinical school called Yeshivat Atchaveh Torah, which is a modern, progressive, open, whatever modifier you like, uh, Orthodox Yeshiva in the Bronx. And uh, that's where I was trained to be a rabbi. And my rabbinate is about... Um, engaging the world and engaging in issues of moral concern and engaging in the big questions of faith and theology and practice today and doing so from a Orthodox context, from the traditional, you know, rooted sources and practices and bringing those two together and, and seeing what comes out of it, which is why I was excited to join this, uh, this podcast today. It seems like we do a lot of, a lot of interesting conversations and work around, um, you know, things that are happening in the world, hot issues, hot topics, What's really going on, and what people are thinking about, it. and I'm excited to to try to bring the Torah, our our tradition, um, to bear on those conversations, and that, that's what I do. So excited to be here today.
1: Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and uh, yes, as you noted, this may be the first podcast in history that has two Ari's. Ari's. are you an Ari or an Ari? Technically, My,
0: I'm actually an Ariel. Okay, uh, and that's uh, Lion of God. So it's pretty right. pretty cool. Also, though, you know, talk about cultural. Cultural determination what's uh, you know, <laughs> cultural determined is the title. Determined. So I'm Ariel, my sister's named Miranda. So if you can name the Shakespeare play, the pop quiz. <laughs> yes, that'd be the te- that
1: be the tempest. I was an English major. So ah, um, very good. So that yeah, that's that's very funny. Um, yeah. So there's just, a little bit
0: of both. We got the Jewish culture of the Shakespeare culture. Yeah. No, and, I ha- I have I'm to good. ask,
1: as since you are a male Ariel, and you are roughly my age. What was it like when The Little Mermaid came out in 1991 or whatever? How was that for you? Because I got some of it, but probably you got a lot of it also.
0: It was traumatic. It was terrible. And I went to a Jewish day school. So you'd think at a Jewish day school, you'd be kind of protected from from bullying about your name, about your Jewish name. But no, Uh, The Little Mermaid came out. And uh, I have I hated my name, and people would be oh, you're the Little Mermaid Ariel, and the, and they would always you know I'd get the the bar mitzvah invitations addressed to Miss Ariel Hart, and uh, I was mis misgendered by name, and and it drove me nuts. Um, and then later on, I came to realize it's actually a pretty awesome name, but I definitely hated it as a kid, in a large part due to the Little Mermaid.
1: Okay, yeah. So we we share we share that yeah, it was. Um... I, I, yeah I I caught some of it but but being into you know there's girl Ariels <laughs> as well but being a male Ariel in the child in the early 90s um a specific strange type of experience but anyway that's yes. not what we're discussing today so okay mm-hmm. what we're what the topic the the sort of large topic is uh millennial Jews and this is a topic I've actually been thinking about doing an episode for for years and have never really Got, got together to do it, or I was looking for a guest, couldn't find someone, and then I happened to see you quoted in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago in an article about American Jews and Zionism uh, and the recent uh, conflict in Gaza and uh, Israel and the West Bank and other places in, uh, in the region, and of course I saw, whenever I see someone named Ari in the, in the news, I'm always a little bit curious, and you are and yeah, about the same age I am, and you're a rabbi, so I was just looking on your, uh, you know, find out just a little bit more about you, and thought, oh, maybe that maybe this is the finally the person I can talk to a young, uh, a a young rabbi, um, and so we're but the t- we're not I-, I hope to not mainly talk about we're not definitely not mainly gonna be talking about Israel and Zionism that but that sort of inevitably <laughs> comes in at least um, in twenty twenty one we're talking about American Jews but sort of like the reason I've been thinking about this is. For a long time, is there's, there's been this sort of me- conversation about millennials and religiosity, you know, and the, the general narrative is millennials are less, like, less religious than previous generations, less likely to go to a place of worship, or maybe they ad- don't ad- identify as religious in any way, or maybe they're spiritual but not religious. But a lot of the stuff I've seen written about or talked about this focuses on uh, Christians and Catholics and there's various reasons given for the decline in religiosity among those groups. So I haven't seen that much written about American millennial Jews. And since I am an American millennial Jew, I, you know, I'm uh, implicated in this um, as well. And I'm definitely part of it. And just, yeah, just thinking about how I was raised within the faith and also thinking I've, I've often thought about, you know, like the people I went to Hebrew school with. So I went to uh, public school, but a like Hebrew after school three times a week in a uh, conservative congregation in Northern New Jersey. And think, I was thinking a couple of years ago, like, I wonder how many people in my class of, you know, 40 or 50 kids belong to a synagogue right now. And if I had to guess, I would say like, you know, five, maybe 10 at most. Um, and but I would count as one of those people who, who doesn't belong to the synagogue. Um, and like, why is that? Is that part of this larger thing? Are there specific reasons? So there's a lot of possible places we could go with this. But how do you, um, as a rabbi, I mean, how do you, how does American millennial Judaism, if if we could say that such a thing exists, how does it um, seem to you uh, in 2021?
0: Yeah. So it's a big question. And uh, and I'm not a sociologist. Uh, You know, and I can speak from my experience and what I see, but I'm not I don't have my finger on the data, and there are people who do this, who do that kind of work. But from from where where I sit, I think so. I'm a rabbi of a community, and it's a modern Orthodox community. Although our members, I think their personal practice, there's a range. You know, I don't. It's not. It's a. It's a very inclusive. Uh, Orthodox community. We have people who, you know, are strictly Shomer Shabbat. They don't, you know, strictly Orthodox, don't drive to synagogue on the Saturday, Eat kosher, et cetera. And we have people who don't, who are, who, you know, who, who by observance level would, you know, fall somewhere outside of the Orthodox spectrum. Um, but what we have, which is, I think, what uh, is so valuable and what people are looking for, is we have a strong sense of community. There's a really strong sense of community and and it's a particular kind of a community. It's, we are located in the suburbs. Skokie is a suburb of Chicago and it's mostly families, uh, young families, you know, people with young children. Um, But it's a, it's a thick community of people who uh, center a large part of their lives around the faith. Um, And again, that doesn't necessarily mean in Judaism, it doesn't mean that they study Jewish dogma every day or they even study the Torah every day or even every week, but it means that the rhythms of their lives, their community, their friends um, is is focused around Jewish community. Um, that is something which is uh, I think so sought desperately sought by like all Americans today. I mean, I think there are these broader forces of atomization and individualization and, Mm -hmm. and it goes, you know, the bowling alone and all that stuff. People are just more isolated and not part of, um, of groups that have thick social fabric or part of online communities. Um, and those can be very meaningful and powerful, but they are not communities that, uh, shape the rhythm of your daily life. And when I think about Jews and faith, for me, a large com- part comes back to community. Um, and I feel very blessed and fortunate to have it for myself and to be to a leader in a community that is that is thick and strong in those ways. And I I think about what, what we have here. You know, there's in my synagogue is 300 families. Uh, the vast majority of those families live within one and a half miles of one another. Um, that's something that I think America, like just young people in America, uh, are missing that sense of, you have a local community with people that you interact with regularly that know about your life, that care for you when you're down, that you care for them when they're down, that celebrates you when you're up, you know, they're there at the wedding, they're there at the funeral, just that sense of, I'm a part of something. I belong to it. I give to it. I take from it that's for me that's a big part of what judaism is really all about um and it's a big thing that i think that that i wish i could i wish i could export it to all america really the whole world right now i mean, I think this the world is going through this revolution of of uh, you know the the fracture of of all the communities which used to hold people together and, and and hold hold people and they're going away and i think it's a great tragedy and um I, I honestly, a lot of the problems that we see in the world right now, I think are, I think you can trace back in some form to that. Does, and I'm not saying that religion is the answer, right? I'm not even saying that, like, honestly, if, if I could, if I could, if there could be a model of like what we do and it would be completely atheistic, uh, I mean, look, I believe in God. I think Jews should follow the Torah, like all that stuff. I, I, I believe in that. But like, I think the value of community and thick community and real community, um, I wish that everyone, whether they believe in God or not, had access to that. That's, I think, the best thing that Judaism uh, really – one of the best things that Judaism can offer, and then there's the wisdom and the practice and the spirituality and all that stuff. But for me, that's like a big focus of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see it working very well for a lot of people you know, who live around me, but I also know there's a lot of people who don't have that, who are not connected to a synagogue or not connected to – you know, people in the faith community, and and that makes me sad. And um, I, I wonder about the future of Judaism in America without that communal infrastructure.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you do you see yourself uh, more as a community leader, a spiritual leader, or, or are those fused together in some way? Um, the way you're describing it, it sounds like community leader more than spiritual leader, which I guess is maybe somewhat surprising, but maybe not when we when we think about. What, what's, um, what's happening? Well, how, how do you Because it's,
0: it's, it's community that is anchored in spiritual values, right? It's community that's anchored in religious values. Those, those are some of the, the parameters of the community, right? We, we celebrate the Sabbath, right? And even if people do it in different ways, there's kind of an agreed upon general way that that happens. Like you go to synagogue and you see people and, um, you know, you have meals together, right? Like, you know, an, an average, we call it Shabbat, the average Shabbat here in Skokie in normal non-COVID times is, um, you know, you you go to prayer services, your kids see their friends, they go to children's groups services, you do some praying, you hear a sermon, there's some spiritual, hopefully uplift and inspiration in those moments. Then you socialize that we call the kiddish, and you see a lot, you know, you're in a room with 200 people and you're just connecting about you know thing you know how's your kids and and you're just having those regular kind of social glue moments and then you go to someone's home for a lunch and then and you know, in, the, in the community and you eat lunch together and then you go to the park and you go to the park and you see another 100 people in the community and their families all running around the park you take a walk with somebody and it's this very thick communal day um and I'm you know the rabbi of that so there is an aspect of spiritual uh teaching and and structure and framing and and uh practice that i preach but also a lot of what i do and i know and this is and again i think they're hand in hand is um is trying to build community and connect community and connect people to one another judaism is not ultimately a solo faith right it's not like you know christianity where I, again i don't my understanding of Christianity, it's you know, it's really the, there's a big focus on being personally saved, right? Are you saved? Are you not saved? You accept Jesus? You not save Jesus? And it's about my soul and, and my relationship to God. That's there in Judaism, also. Of course, there's a soul and there's a relationship with God, but it's a religion that really plays out in the communal sphere, not just in the individual sphere.
1: Right, and and the, the minion is the uh, is one symbol that, right. um, and you can explain what a minion is. People to know better than I could, I'm sure, Um, but it's you need a a number of um people in order to have a a prayer of certain kind say certain kinds of prayers yeah, um, a quorum yeah right
0: absolutely and and right there are many things in where you need a group you can't do it alone right there's a whole morning when you lose a parent or when you lose someone close to you and you're going through a morning process um there are things that you cannot do unless you're with the group of people, which is again, it's forcing people into the community. And uh, and look, community is not always simple. Community can be really complicated, and uh, and and some people, some communities are not healthy. Some communities are toxic. It's some communities, um, you know, pre- uh, lift up the wrong kinds of people or protect people that shouldn't be protected. So I'm not saying it's communities a panacea or it's always fun and everything's perfect. It can be very challenging. A lot like family, you know, like family is great and family can be challenging and can be very destructive too, depending on the dynamics. Um, But at the end of the day, it is a central aspect, even throughout COVID, you know, for me, um, we were able to keep our minion going. Right. And we did it, thank God, safely and masks and distance and windows open in the middle of February and no instances of transmission but I had every day throughout the since July every day I went to a room and there were at least ten other people in there and we prayed together and we said hello to one another and just the fact that I was able to do that was such a blessing you know and that other people wanted to do that and realized that it was important there's this value like oh yes, like we have this thing and we have to keep you know gathering together safely we, but we were going to keep doing it that gave me tremendous um, comfort and, and meaning throughout the pandemic
1: mm-hmm. Um, So you mentioned, of course, that you are a rabbi in Skokie, Illinois. And I guess Skokie has a totemic uh, symbolism in 20th century American history. And I was just reminded of this yesterday. There's an article in the New York Times about the ACLU and whether they are as interested in pursuing like free speech protection as they once were. And the paradigmatic, paradigmatic case of this is the Nazis... Um, American Nazi Party marching in, Sk- in Skokie. Yeah. And um, so so, I, my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, a number of Holocaust survivors settled in Skokie after World War II, and that's why yeah. the American Nazi Party wanted to march there in the late 60s or early 70s, and it became a famous free speech case about get- them getting a permit. And then right. I believe, and the ACLU rep- represented the Nazis, and I think the, the lawyer, ACU lawyer, uh, was himself a Jew, who is, I believe, is quoted right. in this New York Times article. Will include the link. And um, so, so Skokie. So I don't know much more about Skokie aside from that. So, but I, but I would assume that the people who belong to your congregation are grandchildren or great grandchildren or children or maybe or the, these people, maybe, you know, sadly not as many around it anymore as as there used to be. But um, Skokie is a, is a unique. Jewish community in America. So I've talked way too much about something I don't know that much about. But could you correct me? No, absolutely! Like
0: that absolutely, and one of the I think the highest population of Holocaust survivors in any city outside of Israel was Skokie in the like sixties and seventies. Um, yeah, many survivors settled here. Uh, the Jewish community was built here in many parts, you know, many ways by survivors. Um, do you just do you know uh,
1: why? Why was that? Was that sort of just happenstance or or were there specific reasons that groups of Holocaust survivors came to Skokie in particular?
0: You know, I should know that. I don't know for sure. I mean, Skokie was a suburb that was built in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So it was a new place. There was affordable housing was being built. Skokie's like the American dream suburb. It still is. Very high. There's like 70 languages spoken at the local high school. It's a lot of first first generation immigrants from, from literally all over the world, like, it's really amazing. Who, who lives in Skokie is incredibly diverse. Um, and it was that way, I think, for for Jews fleeing uh, the Holocaust and then the, who were forced out of their homes in Europe. Um, they were also, it, Skokie was both those Jews and also Jews from the west side of Chicago, south and west side of Chicago, which in the sixth, 50s and 60s uh, were that was part of the great migration and African Americans from the South were moving up into those neighborhoods and, uh, Jews and white people left those neighborhoods. Um, and then, and many of those people came to Skokie. Um, so Chicago, an incredibly segregated city and Jews were not allowed to live in other suburbs because they were Jewish. Um, so just, you know, classic. Race, religion dynamics in the '60s—you know, the Jews wanted to move away from the blacks. But the Jews weren't allowed to move into the places with with the whites. Um, so Skokie was kind of this uh, middle ground, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just known that it was an affordable place where you could live the American dream. You I know, mean, you could. There's still today it's, the, the housing is affordable and can buy a nice house and there's good schools and garbage pickup twice a week. And I think it was attractive in those ways, but yeah, we just, we, uh, we lost, uh, one of our few remaining Holocaust survivors, uh, just two weeks ago, 99 years old built, you know, one of the builders of the synagogue an amazing mm-hmm. human being. Um, so that those memories of the Holocaust and of the Nazi marches, um, and of, uh, That that certainly shaped Jewish identity here in Skopje for the survivors and their descendants, second, third, now even fourth generation, which we have in our community. Mm
1: -hmm. So, so it probably is. It's unique. I mean, there's not a a lot of other places in the world that have this same uh, history. And the the place where I grew up, I guess, somewhat the parallel is, you know, Jews who left. Uh, Newark and Essex County, New Jersey. A lot of them settled in southern Maplewood, New Jersey, and brought their synagogues with them um, as as they moved. And yeah, that was that pattern repeated itself around the country after you know World War II. Um, Okay, so getting back to millennial millennial Jews, you know, you, you talked a lot about community and. I, one of the uh, sort of cliche about Judaism is it's more about what you, it's more about doing things than uh, believing things. I don't know how, maybe that's true. You can, you can weigh in on your opinion of that. Um, but, you know, th- there's observance and ritual plays a larger role in Judaism than in some other American religions. And so you can, but at the same time, the, history of Judaism and the sort of ethnic racial component means that people call call themselves Jews and they are Jews, but maybe they don't actually do any of the ritual um, observances, etc. And whereas someone who grew up, you know, Methodist and then stopped attending church, maybe they wouldn't, they wouldn't call themselves like a lapsed Methodist or something. Of course there's lapsed yeah. Catholics, but it's just, it's, it's a different thing. And I'm, Wondering how you see people from, you know, under forty. Although uh, the oldest millennials are turning forty this year, um, do you see any differences in our generation than in previous generations when it comes to the, that observance?
0: Well, I think you know you, you raise an important point about Jewish identity, and that it's it's complex. Um, someone uh, Avram Infeld is a Jewish educator who tells this story how he, he goes all over the, all over the world and talks about Judaism and he always he poses the following um, thought experiment to his audience he says um, uh, uh, soccer baseball football uh, red yellow green Jews blank blank
1: right so in America well, what would you answer I mean I would I You know, Jews, Christians, Muslims is
0: the first thing that comes to mind. That's that's the Americans say Jews, Christians, Muslims. Um, In the former Soviet Union, it's uh, Jews and Russians. In Israel, it's uh, Jews and Arabs. In South America, there's like no other category. It's just like, it's like a separate, there is no blank, blank. <laughs> and I think that speaks And those answers, speak to some of the different aspects of, um, of Jewish identity. There's the faith piece, Jews, Christians, Muslims, we are a religion. There's the uh, ethnicity piece, Jews, Arabs, um, even though the ethnicities of Jews in Israel, right? It's a, it's a wide ethnic range. Um, or at least we would perceive it that way, but maybe Israelis would say, no, there's an ethnicity called Israeli, and there's different colors of Israelis, but that's like an ethnicity. And it is, and then the Russia piece is more culture. It's like Jewish culture and Russian culture. And they're so like at odds. So culture, ethnicity, faith uh, are three of the ingredients that I think make up the Jewish people. And that's I the language of people more than the Jewish religion or the Jewish ethnicity. Right? We're not a classic ethnicity, A, because there are so many Different DNA strands and Jews. You look, you go to the State of Israel, you see who's around. You'll see all different colors and sizes and shapes, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, and also, anyone can become a Jew, right? Now, I can't become black, but someone can become a Jew. So it's not a classic ethnicity in the same way, right? Um, but it's not just an ethnicity because there is a faith. Um, but it's not just a faith because you could be Jewish and have nothing to do with the faith. There is a culture piece. I eat, you know, Chinese food on Christmas Day and. Uh, you know, I watch the movies and and I you know use Yiddish slang, but I don't believe in God, right? So those are all aspects of what make up Jewish identity. As an Orthodox rabbi, like I I probably privilege the religious piece the most, and I think it, for me it's ultimately the most interesting and important and significant one. Um, but I also totally recognize that uh, someone says like I'm a Jew, uh, they can say that and mean a lot of different things. You can have someone who I don't you know the, the, yeah. So Jewish people, and I think for millennials, I, I wonder if that's understood, that this thing is a Jewish people, that it's not, a, it's not a Jewish faith, it's not a Jewish ethnicity, it's not a Jewish culture, it's a people that have all those things, and I, I wonder if that gets lost sometimes, and, and I also wonder if people feel like they can be a part of that people, you know, if, if there's, if I say, well, I don't go to synagogue, so I'm not a part of that people, or I don't. Um, you know, or I don't look Jewish. I'm a Jew of color. And like all the Jews that I know are white, right? So I'm really a part of that. And I think the answer that we need to say is yes. You know, it's a people. And if you want to be a part of this people, uh, you can't. Just like Ruth, you know, we just celebrated the holiday of Shavuot and we read the, 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 uh, the book of Ruth, very important biblical book. And basically it's about a woman. She's Moabite. They were actually like an enemy of the Jewish people. And she's like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm in. Like she says to her mother-in-law, who's Jewish, your people's my people, um, your God's my God. Where you rest, I want to rest. Where you're buried, I want to be buried. And she's in, and boom, that ends done. So I think we need to. I don't know how millennials relate to that concept, um, and I think you know part of that piece about community. Uh, I'd like to believe that for people who 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 are feeling. Um, you know, like not a part of a community, not a part of a people like kind of atomized and isolated or a part of communities or identities that are um, not as thick and meaningful. I think, you know, today people express their communities through products they buy or through, you know, uh, through kind of much thinner, bigger, but thinner um, ways and I think the idea of being a part of a people that's like ancient and has a bright future. And I wonder I don't know, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm honestly pretty in it. So I can't, I can speak for myself. I feel pretty in it and connected to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and other millennials, you know, I also feel I, I, a lot of these things, I think the piece about Israel, the piece about um, even just belonging tribalism, right? Like though, these are very, these are not, these are not so, Uh, popular, these ideas right now. Like, I have a tribe of people that I'm connected to. And sometimes for good reasons, tribalism can be incredibly dangerous and violent and destructive. Um, But at the same time, what does it mean if you don't have a tribe? What does it mean if it's just, like, you and your nuclear family and, like, a few friends and that's it? And there's, like, 8 billion other people and you're just sort of floating in that? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's got to be an in-between. and and
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and and there's a lot there. To, I mean, you, I, the search for identity, you know, that's not limited to millennials, but the way that technology and culture have changed make it so that like a lot of people seem to me a lot of people are searching for an identity that is both specific to them that makes them unique, and the character this will be like the snowflake kind of stuff, but also like brings them together, and the like sort of. Dumbest version of this is like the Twitter bio where someone says like, you know, uh, Hufflepuff, Scorpio, you know, ENFP or whatever, their Myers-Briggs thing. And so people, that, all that stuff, you know, <laughs> astrology, Harry Potter houses, like people are, are looking for some way to identify and belong to something, but also in the sort of, <laughs> it seems to be in the online world where anonymity is very possible, but also you want to stand out. You want to like build a personal brand in some, in some way, you know, listing all these different things uh, is both identifying yourself uniquely and then saying, I also belong to the tribe of Hufflepuff. Even if that is something that JK Rowling, you know, made up 20 years ago. Um, and.
0: Right. But also it's like, but do you really belong to that? I mean, like you identify you, your market, you've got a marker and there are other people with that marker um, but is Hufflepuff going to bring you chicken soup when you're sick. Right. And I think that's like, and are you going to go to, you know, are you going to go to Hufflepuff's wedding? Right. Like that's the, the cycles of life, the rhythms of life. Um, do you have community there for you in those moments? That's, I think the key. And I think a lot of this stuff is, I don't know. I don't know how people are experiencing
1: it. You know, I'm not, a, Again, I'm not, a, I, I left Twitter intentionally. Well, very, it's, a very wise move on your part. Yeah. Um, I, I have not, uh, made that move yeah i'm I'm within it but yeah i just think yeah you're right so there's no actual real hufflepuff community i guess maybe it's possible to think of people forming some sort of loose association of through you know online fandoms it doesn't have to be harry potter obviously if they identify with you know house stark and game of thrones or or all sorts of other sports team
0: or anything yeah yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. and i would not say it's not real. <laughs> I think there is a reality to it. There's certain and there's some things that are probably really great about it. I mean, I think right, like I'm a Bulls fan. It's cool to know that there's, you know, a million other Bulls fans around me. That's a nice feeling. But I also I my expectations of my fellow Bulls fans are different than they are of my of my physical lived community here. Um and I think people um there's just more that's possible. And look, the flip also, the, the another piece though, is that with community, there are sacrifices, right? With community, it's, it's not all about my identity, right. When in a communal setting, like there is a kind of a, of a giving up of some of that autonomy or self-expression, not that, I mean, it, and it depends on the community, right? Some communities, some religious communities it's like really intense, right? Like you cannot wear those clothes. You cannot think those thoughts. Like you got to, you got to submit and conform. Um, some communities, it's very, very loose, right? There's the like, you do whatever you want and we'll all be friends, but like those communities, it's more, it's harder. The thickness is harder to, to foster when you have everyone just doing something completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, I think probably most communal leaders think they're hitting the sweet spot. I would like to think I hit the sweet spot, but of course, everyone thinks they're doing it. Like if you're more conformist to me you're totalitarian crazy but if you're less conformist than my community you're you know there's nothing really there it's too thin but that's that's a that's something i think about a lot is um you know what what are what concessions do people have to make to be a part of this community um what do they gain from being a part of the community um I'll tell you, you know, I was someone I've been talking with recently who's leaving the community. What does that mean, right? Like, how does someone, what's the difference between a cult and a community, right? Like, a lot of cults will say, we're a community, and everyone here, and they're so happy, and we're all together. But, like, if you try to leave, you know, like, it's not going to be a good ending. So, mm-hmm. obviously, we don't want to do that, right? So, how do you create a community that people can, that's permeable, people can come in and out, um, but also is strong and has a good foundation? These are some of the things I think
1: about. Mm-hmm. Um. So one, as I look back on my, you know, Jewish life, I mentioned before, like my Hebrew school was, you know, is is way up there, top top five parts of my Jewish experience, and in I, a positive way. No, and so no. And so I <laughs> and probably I don't know. It, it, there were it was idiosyncratic in various ways, but I feel like the, the Hebrew school I went to, which was. Two synagogues in this town, two conservative synagogues pulled together, you know, like 40 or so kids in each grade and twice a week after school and then a Shabbat, you know, service with like a junior rabbi kind of thing. It's probably pretty standard. Um, I like, I think most of us really hated it and yeah. there probably was a different way it, it could have been done. Definitely could have been done better. But looking back at it that, you know, when you're a kid, the, the things that happen to you, you don't re- entirely understand them, but... The the way they play out, uh, nonetheless, continues to shape you. And the things that I remember about Hebrew school, well, first, I mean, really no kid after like a full day at school wants to go to two more hours yeah. of education. So that was sort of a bummer, but whatever. But also, I think the the things they tried to inculcate within us were sort of like, they wanted to prepare us for our bar and bat mitzvahs, and they wanted to tell us that uh Israel was really good. And that was about it. And we didn't really even like learn how to speak Hebrew. And then once I got to high school and started taking like actual Spanish classes, I realized like they never even taught us like how to conjugate verbs in Hebrew. And I think like they want us to read it and be able to, yeah, do the bar mitzvah. That was sort of the pinnacle of the Jewish education. And then a lot of people dropped off after that. Some people continued to a Hebrew high school thing. Uh, I did not and probably the ma- majority of my, you know, uh, fellow students did not. And. Yeah, and there's just things like, I, you know, <laughs> things, you look back at your schooling and you think about, well, they taught us this, but real it's like this, and why did they not tell us these things? And I just, like, I don't know, I, I wonder how, I assume that you are also heavily involved in, in Jewish education, um, in your congregation. How, how, did, how do you see that? Are things, is there anything that's changed as millennials are sending their own children um, I'm not sure what generation millennial children are um, to Hebrew education. Uh, what, yeah, what is what is emphasized, or what what should be emphasized? How, how do you understand that?
0: Um, sorry, giant dog just made my backyard. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think. Hebrew school education for ninety or for a large percentage of American Jews over the last seventy years was a massive failure, um, and that's sad. You know, it is sad. I think it, for a lot of people, experienced it as a waste of time and focus on the wrong things, and um, it's a great loss. I um, I do Jewish education, but the truth is, most of my most kids in my community are go to private Jewish day schools. Mm-hmm um and that's a bit you know and that's a huge choice and a sacrifice again you know that you have to make to, to to do that um but what comes with it is that sense comes back to that community um and you're that kind of 360 community right like my kids are in school with the kids and then they're them in synagogue and then they that's their social group and etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know jewish education. Jewish day school education provides both the strong uh, textual, you know, critical thinking, Jewish learning stuff, um, but it also provides the strong communal identity. Um, look, a lot of millennials, I think, probably are turned off from Judaism because, yeah, because like a crappy, childish, non-nuanced, not sophisticated Judaism was Shoved down their throats two days after school each week, where they would rather do other stuff. So I get that. You know, I wouldn't be excited about Judaism if that was my experience. Um, I think there's a wonderful book which I'll recommend uh, by uh, Sarah Hurwitz called uh, Oh Boy. What's it called? Um, I forget what it's called, but it's a it's an introduction to Judaism. She was a former speechwriter for Michelle Obama um and it's her she's the I've, same I've, okay, I've, heard, I've
1: heard of this i've heard of this book yeah it's yeah. a, a wonderful
0: book. book same same story she went to hebrew school hated it was totally unaffiliated and then like found her way into an into an adult uh jewish class at a jcc and i mean jewish studies amazing like you know what you got as a, at a hebrew school was probably really crappy um, you know, rote memorization of stuff for bar mitzvah and, you know, whatever, propaganda. But um, the Torah and the tradition of study and d- debate and questioning and non-dogma, right, just like exploration and inquiry over thousands of years um, as one unbroken conversation is so cool. It's so cool. Like, there's nowhere else you can find that. And um, all the questions that people struggle with today. Um, faith in God, questions of power and ethics, questions of where do I belong? What's my identity? Questions of just basic, you know, interpersonal ethics. They're all part of the conversation. And it's, again, a conversation over 5,000 years from Iraq to Algeria. It's this Poland to Chile to the United States like it's just amazing and I, I hope that people can find their way into those conversations because they're so great and I think Sarah's book is actually a great way into some of those conversations
1: mm-hmm. and we'll, um, we'll, we'll track down the title of that and the link to it will be below on the, on the site when people are watching this yeah I, I remember reading reviews of that of that book and I guess I should, I should check it out um, yeah there's just things that I mean the since you know you're I mean, if you look back on, like, a public school history education, what they're teaching kids about America in, like, third and fourth grade, and then you look at, like, what you learn in college, there are going to be some differences. And actually, I took a a, sort of randomly, I took a history class in college that was called something like Jews in Muslim lands and, you know, learned a lot more about, like, history, you know, actual history and uh, the Babylonian exile and things like this, like, they glossed over or never would have mentioned um, mm-hmm. you know, like the Cairo Geniza and all, all sorts of other interesting historical facts yeah. and, and the role of Jewish viziers in uh, Ottoman, you know, principalities and all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, this was not ever, I mean, maybe maybe it would, just, it would be hard to communicate these things to, you know, 10 year olds, but, um, right. but yeah, I, I, I do you see, um, so the, I mean, a, a Jewish day school experience is different from, a Hebrew school experience um, and probably and I will not
0: say that I was necessarily getting super we weren't talking about viziers and we weren't talking about <laughs> theodicy and we weren't talking about Jewish, you know, meditation and mysticism, but the advantage that I got is that I got the fluency, right? You know, I learned how to read Hebrew and I learned I got access to those texts and um, I think you know, the experience, a millennial who doesn't have access to that, you know, the Hebrewism there, just the, and just the the discourse and you know, the ability to step in and be in those conversations because they didn't get in Hebrew school or they didn't even go to Hebrew school. Um, I think that can feel alienating, right? If I'm a millennial Jew and I've heard that the Talmud is really cool and it is cool. It's super cool. But I walk into a Talmud class. I'm just like, what, you know, what is going on? Right. So yeah. I, I mean, it, as a kid, I, I
1: don't, I don't know if they taught us like the Torah, the Talmud, like I don't think these were like explained. Right. It wasn't, it's like differentiated right. yeah so there were things and it's almost like as i, I you know th- things are taught in different ways as i got to college and um you know interacted with other <laughs> other uh, students who are also jews they had different experiences and you know talked about different things i've learned different things but yeah it's just um the, the version of american judaism that was given to me through that schooling was a defective one and yeah i, I would it would be interesting to do a survey of my uh, thirty or forty um, former Hebrews classmates and see what they are thinking about their faith and do they belong to a synagogue? So they, you know, I, I feel like when you when a if a family is raising Jewish children, that's probably that would be an impetus to join a synagogue or rejoin a synagogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's probably be part of it. Um, okay, so one. Okay, so. The conversation around Judaism, American Judaism, anti-Semitism has sadly, you know, changed gears or something in the past couple of years as, you know, sort of uh, things that, like anti-Semitic currents within the country that I at least thought had gone away or were, like, banished to the basement of American culture emerged in different ways online, the alt-right, and... um yeah, just th- there were more. Yeah, I if you, you asked me in 2014 how important anti Semitism, what, how much of a factor anti Semitism was in America, I probably would have said, you know, negligible um, compared to other countries and the, um, you know, uh, mass, the mass shooting at the Synagogue like in Pittsburgh and, and other things during the Trump years. Um, changed uh how I thought about that. And there was a and that was actually the first non high holiday um or bar or bar mitzvah uh uh Shabbat that I, you know, uh s- services that I attended was at the week after that shooting when there was kind of like a movement to, you know, stand up against hate mm. and you know studying it kind of broadly. Um so that was yeah, that was the first time I'd been to just a regular um, regular um, Shabbat service in in many years um, but that so it, it sort of makes sense that if a group feels threatened the some parts of the identity someone's identity are like activated uh, and it, se- it seems maybe more important than it did otherwise and then we also have all the Israel stuff but how did you did you see anything changing is this is this just anecdotal or or were people you were talking to feeling differently about millennials in particular, but not specifically, doesn't have to be, um, but they feeling differently about their faith after, you know, during, during the Trump administration and the people in Charlottesville chanting Jews will not replace us and other horrible events that, that have happened over the past five years.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, I, Hmm. anti-Semitism definitely just definitely rise um, and anti-Semitism is weird. It doesn't fit uh, any one particular worldview in how you, or, or it can be made to fit worldviews, but I think that it's uh, it's wrong when people comport it um, towards one or the other. I mean with Trump, and with Pittsburgh Tree of Life and Poway and all these the alt-right people were doing stuff. Um, My community is very split uh, or diverse politically, I'll say it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. Just last weekend, I had a conversation with two congregants, two millennial congregants, um, each who expressed uh, their recent Feelings of being unsafe in synagogue, which they had never experienced before, but within, within the last couple of years, one was you know in response to uh, the rise of white supremacy. Pittsburgh and her understanding of anti-Semitism is that it's a it's a right wing phenomenon, and that's uh, what makes her feel unsafe. And the other one said, "I never felt unsafe until the last couple of weeks when there was a rise in." pro-Palestinian demonstrations that led to or were or were or just were Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic we had some in Skokie we had a synagogue vandalized we had a group of people chanting uh, intifada at a synagogue um, just you know across the street in the synagogue Mm -hmm. so that's anti-Semitic and he said I never felt afraid and I was like well there was shootings at synagogues like just a couple years ago by white supremacists and he's like, oh yeah, that just didn't, that didn't make me as afraid. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like, what's, what your, your kind of underlying narrative, both as Jews and, in, and beyond the Jewish community, can inform what you're afraid of. I'm afraid of both. You know, I think both are scary mm-hmm. and, uh, and both are a threat on the far left and the far right. Uh, they're different. And, um, not, I'm not, I'm not getting into the game of which is worse, but they both scare me. Um, I think what's complicated about antisemitism outside the Jewish community is that you know everyone, everyone agrees antisemitism is bad, right? Most people, you know, they'll say like, oh yeah, that's bad. Shouldn't you choose? But um, where it comes from and how to respond to it and what, and um, is is uh, understood very differently by different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I in talking... I know we don't want to spend all today talking about Israel, but I think right now in this latest iteration, a lot of the anti-Semitic, the reason the synagogue down the block for me, whose windows was smashed, um, was because of Israel. Um, and I think something that really freaks me out is you see the rhetoric around Israel uh, turned up to um, an extreme, right? To say, Israel is equivalent to the Nazis, to say Israel's committing genocide, to say Israel is committing ethnic cleansing. Um, I know there's like a uh, those words are just in in the common understanding of what genocide and ethnic cleansing and Nazis are. Um, those are lies, uh, but they get spread and echoed a lot in certain spheres. And that leads to violence because if I told you, hey, there's like, if it was 1944, and I was like, hey, there's like a building in your block that's like a Nazi supporting building, and they love Nazis and want the Nazis to do all their Nazi things, you would feel, you know, you wouldn't feel so bad if someone beat up one of those people or even hurt or killed one of those people or hurt the building, right? Damage attacked it because okay. like Nazis are the worst. Evil thing um, And when that kind of rhetoric gets used Against Jews, the Jewish state Is, and this is rhetoric That is, I mean, I've seen it It's, you know, satanic It's it's Nazi, it's, you know They killed their, their their baby murderers Right, that kind of language um, Which also has roots in deep Anti-Semitic stuff, right, Jews kill babies We drink babies' blood, right, we're evil blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that As very dangerous And, um, and people are not willing to call it out, um, or say, or, or even worse, I think are inciting it, even, you know, celebrities, some political leaders. So that really freaks me out a lot. Um, I think it's real dangerous. And I think we're not, we haven't seen the last of it, unfortunately. I mean, it's tied and cycle, you know, this stuff flares up during, um, during conflicts during, you know, with Israel and Hamas. But it's not over. And the white supremacist stuff freaks me out, too. I mean, believe me, I, you know, when there, there are two very, very real dangerous threats. Um, and, right, depending on sort of which side of the political aisle you're on, you I see people downplaying one and upplaying mm-hmm. the other one, and that's unfortunate.
1: Yeah, um, that's very well stated. I think, you know, the the... the, the Narrative about prejudice and bigotry in America for very logical, understandable reasons is is understood as the white-black narrative, and but that and that is you know a core uh, part of American history. But uh, applying that lens about um, anti-black racism is not the same; is is different than anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a more unusual phenomenon that, as you said it can come in lots of different directions i've joked like the you know the great thing about anti-semitism is like every, everyone can participate um you know any uh, you know uh, any group or uh, creed color whatever uh can can have their own twist I think it's
0: but people can find common grounds where, you know, people from all different can find the common, yeah, common ground.
1: Exactly. And, you know, uh, Jew hatred has been used by various bad actors throughout history to, you know, um, rally uh, rally other groups and uh, distract from various other problems and, you know, blame the blame the Jews. That's that's happened uh, uh, repeatedly throughout history. So, yeah. I So I think that's one issue is that anti-Semitism. Um, you know, is the things that people talk about when it comes to uh, racism in America, it's just a different problem when it comes to anti-Semitism. And, you know, over the past year, we thought a lot about anti-Black racism in America. And, um, you know, that may have unintentionally have sort of changed, shaped some conversation. I mean, the, I want to ask this question and we want to answer it. You know, are Jews white? Uh, just putting that out there. Uh, like, sort of an unanswerable question, and sometimes yes, sometimes no, but, you know, fitting Jews, how do Jews fit into the, like, white, American white racism conversation is also very complicated, and so, yeah, there's simple answers to this, and demagoguery are you know, bad for uh, bad for all, all involved in, and Jews in particular, um, and... and if, I, I,
0: if I can jump in for a second, I think, you know, the, the talk, the last the last year or so, in america i think dealing in new ways and in good ways with our legacy of racism important very important ways uh, but one and i i support that and as you know there is um a lot that needs to be done um and white jews are part of that story i mean again my family left the south side of chicago you know because blacks were moving in like that's why they left so i think we need to white you know sometimes jews uh, we'll use it as a path So well, I'm not white, I'm Jewish, like, these aren't my problems, you know, or like I wasn't here during slavery, I wasn't a slave owner. Um, and I think that's not right. Like we have, we are a part of the story in Newark, right? We are a part of the story. Um, but at the same time, one of the dangers, I think, of the last year has been the, uh, yeah, the black and white, like the the, the narrative, there's like an oppressor and an oppressed, and you have to choose. Either you're on the side of the press or, or you're on the side of the press. Either you're a racist or you're an anti-racist, right? And there's no middle ground. Putting aside Kennedy and that, the validity of those arguments, I think uh-huh. um, when it comes to more complicated issues like, uh, like Jews and power in America, right, where there's a little bit of both, like Israel. Israel is a very powerful state. There's no doubt about it. Um, Israel's more powerful than Hamas, no doubt about it. Uh, on the same time, that doesn't mean that Hamas is equally is instantly right and Israel is instantly wrong. Like that's that's we've lost that nuance. We've lost that ability to see things, at least in, at least in progressive spaces, in uh, in shades as opposed to just there's a good guy and a bad guy. And if you're not on the side of the good guy, you're the bad guy. And that's I think very dangerous.
1: Yeah, and, and just the online world encourages that sort of. Right. To get, you know. Me against you, uh, or us against them, Tribal, tribalism in, in the bad sense of our side is good, their, their side is bad, and, and so this is a, a problem <laughs> we're going to be dealing with for, for a long time to come. And yeah, I so, okay, so getting into the, the Israel <laughs> piece of this, and that's how I found, uh, you know, you came to, to my attention through this quote in the Times. Um, it is, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, it's, it's, I'm not the first to say that this latest, you know, violence um, between... Israel and Palestine. Um, see, the reaction to it in America seemed seemed different than before. And you know, as you said, um, well, I mean, you know, it, it, every the the narrative of this is is super complicated, and there's probably people who disagree with everything I'm saying. But you know, for for basically, I mean, every side sees itself as the victim and and aggrieved, and has their litany of grievances, and probably most of those grievances have, you know, some accuracy to them. Um, and, I yeah, I think, what am I trying to say? Um, I saw something, something seemed to shift where, okay, people who are very pro-Israel have long used a charge of anti-Semitism against critics of Israel as a way to tell them to be quiet or to discredit them. And sometimes that charge is accurate, and sometimes that charge was not accurate. Um, that Sort of like rhetorical play seems to not be working as well anymore. But at the same time, now suddenly, <laughs> some there are some uh, critiques of Israel where the anti-Semitism uh, is shining through, uh, as as I see it, and and people don't want it, the the play the old play of calling critics of Israel's treatment of its Arab neighbors, um, you know, just anti-Semites. Like that, it's it's sort of a boy who cried wolf situation. Like the, the charge is exhausted, but sometimes the wolf actually does come. And I, you know, just seeing how people were treating this online, and I follow a lot of uh, lefty liberal types mostly online. I saw people saying things that, you know, <laughs> were surprisingly anti Semitic to me. And I maybe, um, yeah, just things that, that surprised me. And if, I think if this person who, who saw themselves as a one person I'm thinking of a particular saw himself as like a good leftist, you know, if this, if they had been confronted with this particular meme they post or whatever, probably would have been like, Oh yeah, this is an anti-Semitic to say. So the thing I'm thinking of in particular was, you know, Andrew Yang uh, gave a sort of standard milk milquetoast uh, statement on the conflict. And a lot of people started attacking him for it. And you know, he didn't mention Palestinian suffering in the statement at all. And then I saw, so I saw someone, uh, post online something about the, you know, the, um, the Zionist power, that Yang was a puppet of the Zionist power structure in New York City. And a lot of Zionist interests were really behind his candidacy. So that is, you know, sort of maybe not anti-Semitism 101, but like, you know, 103, uh, the hidden hand of the, of the Jew is controlling politics. And yeah, it's, it really did surprise me to see someone who, you know, checks up, would check all the boxes of you know being a good liberal and ally <laughs> and progressive and so forth. Um, you know, post something like that. So, and, and that's obviously just one anecdote. But things do seem to have changed, and then it it puts um, American Jews, many of whom still do or once would call themselves liberal Zionists, in a uh, strange position. And um, it's a it's a it's a giant mess. Um, and I I unfortunately don't. I, I think it's just going to get worse. Um, it's something I've not, I'm not optimistic about. The, the forces in Israel and outside it seem like they're not heading in a in a good direction. So that, I've kind of been babbling a, a little bit here. It's a super complicated topic, and probably everyone is mad about it already. But do you, do you have any reaction to that?
0: I agree with a lot of your analysis. I think the one thing I'll say is if friend of mine said in 2016 he learned to stop predicting things and in 2020 he learned to stop planning for things <laughs> and um i'm i'm also i'm getting out of the business of predict- i mean i shit like yeah my now if i if i had to make a prediction it would be uh, um just yeah like what we saw last couple weeks and just more um but i don't know i don't know what's going to happen um I do think that the demonization of Israel is um, um, uh, just often anti Semitic. Look, I, there's, there's a woman who, who I who post, I am still active on Facebook for better or worse. And there's a, a woman who is like a hardcore uh, communist, just straight up. Um, and whenever it was Israel, she writes Israel doesn't have any right to exist. The work, the Israeli workers and the Arab workers need to rise up together and throw and overthrow the oligarchy. And like, no station has a right to it. No state has a right to exist. It should, you know, workers of the world unite. And, um, so for her, it's like, okay, I, when you say Israel doesn't have a right to exist, I'm cool with that because you're consistent. <laughs> you don't think any state should, you think nation states are evil and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it really, it bugs me when like, you know, a white liberal person living in America, which was actually a colonialist enterprise and actually committed a genocide um, and actually continues to, you know, exert massive control across the globe and is responsible for this stuff, you know, the death of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians over the last two decades in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places. And, um, are saying Israel is illegitimate, Israel doesn't have a right to exist, right? BDS, boycott Israel. Meanwhile, you're paying taxes to the U.S. government, which by your analysis actually did and continues to do all the horrible things that you, uh, you, you accused Israel of. So I think there's a lot of hypocrisy there, and I think there's a lot of, you know, and it's the singling out, right? I'm not saying Israel's perfect. I, the occupation of, you know, the, the military occupation of Palestinian land is, to, is a tremendous moral problem. Uh, it is a tremendous, it's it's an untenable long-term moral situation. I mean, I think it was as a temporary thing on a path to two states, you know, it's, it's not good, but it could, you know, you, it was it was a step towards that. But if the two-state solution goes away and that, that's not on the table anymore, I have great fear of what that means for Israel as a democracy. You can't be a democracy and really control the lives of 5 million people who aren't citizens. So that's super real. Um, and and while within Israel, Arab Israelis have 100 percent, you know, equal rights and and um, access to government and education, all those things, there's still tremendous inequality. And that's a huge problem. You know, it's not apartheid, but it is it is. There's racism on that. There's For sure, there's racism, just like there's racism in America. Um, it's not a perfect state. It has deep flaws. It has deep problems. Um, but but. The, the magnifying of those flaws to their Nazis um, and the complete, you know, ignoring of other countries which have similar, if not worse, flaws. I mean, there's a Uyghur genocide happening right now in China. There's a Rohingya genocide happening right now in Burma, you know, Syria. Like, I mean, you know these things. They're, they're just really horrific things going on all over the world. And just like the laser focus and the beating up and like the, and the Zionists and the Zionists are enemies and the Zionists are evil. And that's to me, it's like, OK, this is anti-Semitism. This is anti-Semitism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I wouldn't be the first to note that, you know, Israel and uh, just the whole, you know, everything sort of gets the level of, of craziness. Like, Israel makes people crazy, you know, there's, like, this is not exactly the same, there's this thing, Jerusalem syndrome, where, like, people go, like, to visit Jerusalem as a tourist, and suddenly they start to understand that they themselves are, like, a prophet, or they're the reincarnation right. reincarnation of Jesus, and they start preaching, and then they're, like, taken to a hospital and disabused of, of these notions. So, the, I mean, it's it's the place where, you know, the three Abrahamic religions have deep historical ties. It's just, you know, it is complicated. Like, I, I think but I, I, it's, it's okay. It's, it, the situation is complicated and talking about it is complicated. I think part of this, there's a disillusion, disillusionment among sort of my cohort of mm-hmm. people who were raised, like I said, at our Hebrew school, sort of like the second big thing after <laughs> learning, uh, learning what we needed to become um, Benavitz vote, uh, we you know just like, oh, Israel is great. It's a great place. And if anything bad happens here in America, uh, you'll be able to go to Israel. And you'll be safe there. And this was what was told to us as children. Even then, I think I remember having conversations with my Hebrew school friends being like, we don't speak Hebrew. Why would we go to Israel? We would go to Canada or or England, maybe. Um, you know, these are like 10 year old New Jersey kids thinking about this stuff. But
0: look, I mean, look
1: at, but you know, but but this Israel was held out as this great place. And so sort of like the, the kind of history that, you know, Americans are taught about like George Washington chopping down a cherry tree and other such things. Like America, my cohort of American Jews sort of received a similar ver, like fairy tale version of that story about Israel. And then right. once you become adults and you realize like, oh, Israel has done bad things as well. It's not, you know, the the one mm-hmm. nation in history that is uh, blameless in, uh, in, in all things. I think it, it does lead to sort of like a throwing up of hands or disengagement from the whole thing or, or, or yeah, or saying, you know uh are be becoming an explicit anti zionist or something, and yeah so you know there's like there's a huge controversy over the past couple of years about like the sixteen ninety project in America and reexamining um what are the the real roots of of this nation and um and you know people this 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 new York Times magazine project like made seemingly tens of thousands of people really, really angry. And like, we're still arguing about it years later. Um, right. And that was 400 years ago. You know, Israel was, the state of Israel was in 1948. So there's still people alive who were, uh, <laughs> you know, who were there when it happened. And the arguments about uh, its founding will like continue to go on in the same way they did, they, they have here and in, 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 in other countries, but. It's as, like, and as
0: they, sh- as they should. As any mature people state should. Um, and, you know, the children, you know, and myself at the, at the day school also, you know, we weren't taught complex Israel history. Like we were taught the Six Day War was awesome. And it was awesome from one perspective. And for Palestinians, it was not awesome, right? Um, but um, so, yeah, people need to uh, have a mature relationship with their Judaism. Uh, you were taught a, a, a childish Judaism and a childish relationship with the state of Israel. Uh, that's what people are given. And I think it would be tragic if that's where people stopped, right? Like there's more. Um, Israel, as flawed and complex it is, is, I think, uh, the most important thing the Jewish people have accomplished. And uh, the greatest source of Jewish Thought and renewal and culture and politics and music and spirituality um, in two thousand years. It's it's an, a you know a, a language that was dead was brought back to life. A lot of the things that they taught you in the Hebrew school, um, though cliche and in, and incomplete, are also kind of true. Like it is kind of true. You could go to Israel. You could go to Mara and say, I don't feel safe here. I want to go to a place where I feel safe. You wouldn't speak the language. It'd be incredibly difficult, but you could do it. And that wasn't true for two thousand years. You know, okay. that wasn't yeah. true 60 years ago or 80 years ago. And a lot of Jews died because that wasn't true. Um, and anti-Semitism, uh, the, as we've seen, the anti-Semitism that we thought went away, that was alive then, is alive now. And it's good. It's good that there's a Jewish army. It's good that there's a place where Jews can be safe because uh, a lot of people in the world hate Jews. And and I don't think that's going to change. Um, yeah. And I wish the same thing for Palestinians. I wish the Palestinians have a state and there should be a Palestinian army at peace with Israel that the Palestinians can feel protected and safe. I wish that as long as we live in a nation state world, every every people should have the right to feel safe um, and be in a place where they, they're not they don't feel threatened and their, their existence is not tenuous. Um, but that's been that's been our story. And that's one of the reasons why I support a state of Israel. It's not the only one. Um, you know, I also think we are deeply connected to that land for For millennia and um that's and there's been a constant jewish presence in that land for thousands of years and i think that's also really important but um you know like the the people who reject you know well oh i was told i I wasn't told that israel did this bad thing so so now i'm an anti-zionist like i think that's also childish right like a mature relationship is one of that can hold the good and the bad And that can, and it's the same thing. Like if you have a, you know, you find out that your your you know, your grandfather, you know, who you loved also was a jerk to his, you know, like, it's like that's part of growing up, right. You realize that things are more complicated and you're, you're given something as a kid that's one-sided and, and, you know, rosy and then you grow up and you realize there's more to the story. Um, But that, you know, and, and it's like, well, what do you do with that? You know? And, um, so just is it a rejection? Is it like anger and puffing and puffing, or is it like okay, let's learn? I want to learn about this. I want to understand it better.
1: Yeah, um, you know th- th- this particular angle of the conversation. You know, people have been <laughs> analyzing for a long time. We can talk for a long time more. Um, I-, I do think one other aspect of it is the uh, alienation that the um, like the Netanyahu government successive governments have yeah. uh, brought to american jews in the close relationship you know 75 of american jews almost always vote for the democratic presidential candidate that seemed to be basically the same thing and that there's always this idea that like the jews have finally had it with the democrats over some israel thing or something didn't seemingly didn't change and so three out of four american jews voted for biden and just yeah how the relationship between netanyahu and trump and um i think also was you know something else that um Made the average American Jew who is a Democrat who cares more about things happening in America than Israel because they're American. Um, I think just saying you know the hell of this. I think that is a
0: yeah. Not a no, and I think the 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 relationship between Trump and Netanyahu was a uh, you know at minimum of just an utter PR disaster for the State of Israel in America and America, and 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 more very damaging, very bad. Um, Trump, you know, was a horrible man who um, did hateful things, and the fact that he aligned himself so close to it was disgusting. I mean, for me as a Jew, it was so upsetting. And and look, and I take my some of my fellow Orthodox Jews for, to task over this. I mean, people's embrace of Trump was um, like I get someone who's at the end of the day, you know, they got to make a choice. I, I'm going to vote for this. I can understand. I'm not going to say I don't understand people voted for Trump. Um, I, I know people that did, and, and I understand their, I disagree with them, but I understand why. Um, but people, but the embrace of Trump, the Trumpism within the Orthodox community, I don't, I don't understand or condone. And I, I condemn it, you know, I have publicly and people yell at me about it, but I think it was just a, a terrible thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And one of the, uh, I, a few days after the, the election, I was looking at the maps of the, uh, you know blue and red precincts in the New York city area. And you can tell the um, ultra Orthodox uh, enclaves <laughs> very easily yeah. through those maps and through in spots in Williamsburg and Monsignor, New York, uh, these enclaves, um, you know, where the, the bright red spots, the only ones in the, you know, more, more people were excited about Trump in, you know, like the, this enclave than in Staten Island <laughs> or, uh, or, or um, whatever. Um, so that that's a part of it as well. And, and also, as uh, well, we wouldn't even get into the, the demographics issue. There, okay, we've we've gone on for a while. There's one, there's one thing I I was talking to a friend of mine that, about. Uh, I told her that she uh, that I was going to be doing this interview with a rabbi, and she mentioned something I should ask you about that I'd never even heard of before. So maybe you But the thing she mentioned was a Zoomer Jason of Judaism, and uh, what. Zoomer, so like Gen Z fetishization of Judaism, and I "I don't know what that means. And so she sent me the link to, you know, there's a lot of strange people online. We all know this. It was a particular person, a woman who was 22 years old, and said that she was a convert to Judaism, and she was both mixing things like she she wore what is I'm I'm forgetting the correct term. She was wearing a traditional head covering that an Orthodox woman would wear, but she also had an OnlyFans account, which is like this online way to like make your own pornography and make money off of it. And then she was tw- tw- tweeting about how she wasn't Zionist. And so my friend's interpretation of this was like, there are people who are <laughs> converting to Judaism to, uh, be social media influencers <laughs> in the anti-Zionist direction. I, that seems wild to me, but there's a lot of strange things that happen online, but it did make me think about something we were thinking about before with like, you know, astrology and, and people being interested in, you know, old sources of wisdom or meaning or something. And so someone who, you know, <laughs> converts to Judaism at age 22 in a sort of incoherent way and then is very excited about it online is sort of like someone who got really into tarot or something. Um, and then she this per- particular person was fighting with various other people online who were saying, "You're not actually Jewish, like this is a fraud. and so who who knows about this particular strange example? but do you see <laughs> you know, encounters with this, this sort of thing which which hopefully is just a blip in the <laughs> in the social media radar, but maybe maybe' as a phenomenon, maybe, maybe not.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a time when people are having all these weird things on identity. Um, some of it some of it uh, necessary I mean thinking about gender and gender roles and this is something I'm involved in you know we're in my community we are we advance we 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 advance the role of women within uh, orthodoxy and it's a rethinking of what does it mean to be an orthodox Jewish woman and a leader so I I think you know we're just in a time now where Every question about identity is on the table, and 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 people are doing all kinds of things. Um, and I think the dust will kind of have to settle on a lot of these things. And what's what's uh, healthy and legit, and what's just attention seeking or 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 narcissistic or whatever it is. I, I don't know. This particular case um, sounds confusing. Yes, <laughs> I think it's you know, and, and again, it's like. It's, it's one thing you know from a Jewish lens, Judaism is ultimately not about you right it's also it is ultimately about um, a community a covenant a relationship um, and if we make Judaism all about the individual it's, I don't think it'll really last and I don't think it's really Judaism and okay. people want to get into their Judaism I think you... You should go to school,
1: you know, or go to the okay, JCC, or go
0: read a book. <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, like you do something, yeah. you, you, you you or you bring someone a bowl of chicken soup. Right? <laughs> it's about. It's not about me and my identity, right? It's about being in this conversation. It's about giving. It's about love. It's about connection. It's about community, and 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 you could be all kinds of ways in that space, right? You can be. You know, queer or straight, you can be black or white, you can be all kinds of things. It doesn't actually really matter that much, uh, I think, at the end of the day. Like, it sort of matters more that you're a part of it. That's, I think, um, that will be my message to, to this person. I'd say, like, okay, like, come to Shul and, and make it not about you. Just make it about, I'm in Shul, I'm helping, I'm making the minion, right? I'm counting myself as, a, as part of this 10. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm delivering the chicken soup to the old lady who needs it. Like, that's, that's what I'm doing. If that's what it's about, ultimately, I think it all shakes out. Um, but if it's all about me and my identity, um, yeah, uh, I think that doesn't, I think at the end of the day, that's, uh, uh, it's not what it is.
1: Okay. That's, that's a good place to end, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, there are probably, a dozen other topics we could have included in this conversation, but we only have so much time. But thank you for, um, for, for taking the time. It's, uh, it's been sure. a good conversation and and informative. And I hope Jewish and Gentile uh, viewers, yeah, viewers got, like, inside got, baseball. Some, got something out of inside
0: this. Jewish baseball. And like
1: I said, I really do. I, I, I I'm, I'm going to Google around and see if there has ever been a podcast with, with two Aries before. Where's? I think this is Jewish history. <laughs> Jewish history still alive, uh, today. Um, okay. So you are not you said you're left Twitter. you're still on Facebook. I mean, do, it, usually this is where I say, do you have anything to promote or where can people find your stuff online? But, but how can people find out more about you or your congregation or what you're, what you're currently involved in?
0: Uh, yeah, you can find me on, uh, on Facebook, just Ari Hart. Um, my synagogue guy is called Skokie Valley with Jacob. You can follow us on Facebook if you want to, you know, see our uh, events listing. It might not be the most stimulating follow. I'm on Instagram. I do like Instagram. I don't post on it much, but I have an Instagram page, Rabbi Ari Hart. Welcome. Join the conversation. You know what I'll say? There's one, if you're interested, I did a video for Google. I did a Google talk about the Talmud and that might be interesting to some of you listeners. It's about like what the Talmud is and why I think it's so cool. Um, and if you want to pop, find that link and pop it, we'll we'll track that link down
1: and it will be, uh, below this video. Um, and yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I think um, there's uh, like I said, my you know my Jewish upbringing, my formal Jewish education, things from the culture all combined to make what I currently understand Judaism to be, but there, there are plenty of things that I never learned about or I, I should educate myself on. And um, Read Sarah's will... book. I would recommend that to you. Okay, yeah, I'll, tra- I'll check that one out. Okay, so thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, thank you to our viewers and listeners you know you can rate you can review you can smash that like button and do all sorts of things (laughs) and um and uh uh i guess that's it okay uh thank you so much thanks ari take care